Welcome to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and the date is Tuesday, the 6th of February. Over the weekend, El Salvador went to the polls. El Salvador is a country that Ronald Reagan once said was on the front line of the battle that is really aimed at the very heart of the Western Hemisphere and eventually at us. Now, that was during El Salvador's civil war, running from 1979 to 1992, in which the U.S. supported a brutal counterinsurgency. El Salvador is now once again of regional and even global interest, and that's mainly because of its young president, Nayib Bukele, and his crackdown on gangs. The country's murder rate was 53 per 100,000 people in 2018, the year before Bukele took office. It's now one of the lowest in the region, at 2.4 per 100,000 last year. How has he done this? Well, Bukele's locked up something like 76,000 people, which means that 2% of the population is behind bars. He's also introduced Bitcoin as legal tender and has introduced a state of emergency that's been running since 2022. Over the weekend, Bukele, who remains very popular, it seems, was re-elected in what seems to be an enormous landslide. On Sunday, Bukele said El Salvador never had democracy. This is the first time in history that El Salvador has democracy, and it's not me saying it, it's the people. This is from a man who once labeled himself the coolest dictator in the world. At the same time, just before the election, his vice president, Felix Ulloa, said, to those who complain that democracy is being dismantled, my answer is yes. We are not dismantling it, we are eliminating it, and we are replacing it with something new. In a Latin American context, in which support for democracy is waning and violent crime is on the increase, it seems like the Bukele model could spread. Plenty of politicians across the region have been pretty explicit in their admiration of El Salvador's president. But what actually is Bukelismo? How different is it from traditional authoritarian right across the continent? How has he actually lowered the murder rate? Uh, Is it just locking people up or have there been negotiations with gangs? And is his sort of rule replicable in other countries? To figure all this out, I'm going to be talking to, firstly, Nelson Nauda, a Salvadoran journalist, and then to delve deeper into the regional and ideological features of Bukelismo, I'll be calling up Juan Rojas, uh, who writes about Latin America for Compact magazine. Now, for the full episode, you'll need to subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash bungacast. There you'll also get access to several unique paywalled episodes a month. And just to foreshadow what we've got coming up uh, over the rest of the next month, uh, we've got coverage of Indonesia's upcoming elections, uh, discussions, several discussions on the role of emotion in politics, particularly emotions like anger and resentment, and much else besides. So I hope to see you there. That's at patreon.com slash bungacast. Okay, hello. I'm here with Nelson Rauda, who's going to tell us about the situation in El Salvador. Uh, Nelson is an editor at El Faro, an investigative online-only outlet. Um, So, hi, Nelson. Welcome. And could you tell us a little bit about what El Faro is? Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, I am... um, 
I've been working in El Faro for almost a decade now. El Faro uh, was born as a post-war, post-Civil War newspaper in El Salvador in 1998. El Salvador had gone through a civil war through the 80s. Um, and it, it, at, at that time, it was considered by the founders that there's the necessity of a news outlet that didn't respond to the traditional powers, the, the, the traditional media in El Salvador responded to the right wing. Um, and, and then there was some left wing media, but it was considered that it, there needed to be a new outlet that didn't necessarily respond to any of the traditional powers. So uh, ever since El Faro was born, it started clashing heads with politicians at the, at, at the beginning, that was the right wing. Then uh, when the left wing came into power, El Faro started investigating the left wing. And nowadays we are pretty much in Bukele's coalition course. Right, right. Um, yeah, so you're a, a roadblock, I guess, um, as you would see yourselves to him claiming ever greater power. We, we consider ourselves to be a newspaper in resistance, uh, essentially. We... Uh, since Bukele's term, we, we have been exiled as a newsroom. Uh, we move our administrative operation to Costa Rica because of the Bukele government harass har harassment. We have been spied on uh, with Pegasus software. Uh, I was personally spied two months, or a little over two months, but uh, there's been an obsessive spying on 22 members of El Faro, which is incredible because we're, we're mm. in, like a 30-person team um we we have been audited for in the finance ministry uh because bukele said that we uh, launder money which is also incredible because the first requirement to launder money is to have money and <laughs> obviously we are independent journalists we have no money uh and yeah the, 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 there's a, a a a lot of things and it has to do with the things that we have been able to uncover about Bukele's regime. Right. Um, so on that, uh, there's obviously been the election at the weekend. What would you say the mood is in El Salvador now? Um, with such a resounding victory, does it feel like everyone is aboard the Bukele train? Or I guess it, it does it depend on the region, neighborhood that you're in? You know, first of all, I would ask, what resounding victory? We don't have any results of the election. We have a Bukele tweet claiming that he won with a percentage and that in, in claiming the amount of seats that he wants at the legislative center. I, I don't know, maybe I have this wild idea that when you have elections, you should count the results before, you know, making assumptions of who won and by how margin. Uh, but, you know, maybe these are old fashioned ideas uh, in these new democracies like Bukele is running. Uh, I don't know. He could have just sent us an email. I won by this margin, uh, and and this is the amount of seats I have at the parliament. Congratulations. Um, and people don't seem to care. I don't. I, I wouldn't say it was. Uh, I I say it's maybe festive, and then there's some of us that are raining on the parade, saying you know stupid stuff like maybe we should count the votes. Mm -hmm. um, but. The, the other thing is that the, 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 there's not a, a sense of wild, uh, like like the election was on Sunday, people associated with him celebrated. 
a lot of people celebrated in social media. And then it was back on Monday. Everybody got to feed their family, everybody got to go to work. Uh, you, 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 you did see his celebration at night on Sunday, but then it's Monday. You have to feed your children. Uh, so, and then there was some protest. A, a group of feminists, a small group of feminists, uh, was mobilized yesterday to to protest what they are considering an electoral fraud. Uh, we have no preliminary results whatsoever. We have no idea even of how much the attendance really was at the polls. And what the results were showing was like amazing in, in the system when they were showing the results. For one hand, it said that no votes have been counted in this specific department in Cabañas. But on the other hand, when the system was put to zero, Bukele's party already had 10,000 votes. So it was like blatantly charged to favor him in, in spite or, or in top of everything that they have done fraudulent towards this election. We call it coronation uh, because he shouldn't have been able to run in the first place. This election was doubtful of how legit legitimate it is since the moment that his face was allowed to go in the ballot. Right. Um, and a lot of his his rule so far has been very personalized, I think, right? His figure um, as someone who can solve problems and solve um, particularly El Salvador's uh, problems with gangs and crimes, I think, has been very much to the fore. So it'd be interesting to know a little bit of Bukele's history. Um, he comes from, he was part of the left-wing party and then kind of moves to the center. If you could tell us a little bit about that history. He, he, so he's the son of a millionaire family that was never really accepted in the Salvadoran elite, mostly made of, you know, people from Spain, Ascent and, and Palestine. Uh, so he starts being a major and, and, and essentially creates all his political career with the left party. With his father had liaison with the left wing party, the former guerrilla, El FMLN. Um, and he then starts shifting as he is in, in, in power when he gets to be the mayor of San Salvador, the capital. He, he runs into a fight with the, the party, with the FMLN, because he wanted to be the presidential candidate. He gets himself expelled from the FMLN and he runs, not with center, I would never describe him as center. He, uh, he runs with a right-wing party and then he has essentially behaved like a right-wing party. I don't think anybody could consider him center because he had he was very friends with Trump. Uh, he instated a border patrol in El Salvador. He signed asylum agreement, the third, third country asylum agreement with Trump. Then things started going south with the U.S. When uh, Biden came into power, he started clashing with the U.S. And then he started dressing himself as this anti-imperialist, more like Viktor Orban, more like, uh, you, you know, this trying to be anti-system while being so uh, deeply part of the system. Mm. Uh, he has run like a right wing. Like I, I would consider him uh, like a corporativist, uh, uh, a, a, yeah, like a corporativist model. Uh, maybe I'm influenced by this. I'm reading Naomi Klein's Doctrine of Shock. Uh, but, but in that sense, in, in giving making everything private. He says, 
the public should be better than the private, but then he privatizes everything mm. uh, and he centralizes everything. So yeah, I would describe him as very much in the right wing. So, I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit of a figure like Tony Blair or even Bill Clinton and, and being kind of third way-ish, although perhaps more adapted to uh, the ideological climate of the 2010s, 2020s than of the 1990s. Uh, in, insofar as a lot of the, you know, the, his setting up of a new party, Nuevas Ideas, New Ideas, um, and the adoption of Bitcoin and all these kind of elements um, speak to a certain kind of technocratic um, bent, I think, um, and an idea to present oneself as new and young of a new generation, getting rid of the old, the old left and the old right and removing on um, a kind of gener- presenting an idea of generational renewal. Do you think is that an important part of what he's selling? I think he's a very skilled advertiser. I think he's a, a much better advertiser and PR man than a politician. Uh, and maybe that's what it takes to be a, a successful politician nowadays. You know, uh, you're you're just uh, branding yourself and, and selling yourself as this image of this innovative. Well, you're, you're, it, it's essentially a, a, a traditional Latin American caudillo, but with an X account. Uh, and, and, and we have techno disguise, but this is an authoritarian dystopia uh, with, with, with very good advertising. Right. Um, so, I mean, to get on to the authoritarianism, because I think that's um, the part that most stand out about his rule and, and indeed have been most influential, it seems, uh, across the region. So the state of emergency is brought in in March 2022, um, which itself, I think, was a, a development of the, of the uh, state of emergency that was brought in during the pandemic. So maybe we can talk, I think, firstly, if we work through this chronologically, um, what the state of emergency was like uh, during the pandemic. So so um, I think it's very important. Bukele starts being a president in June 2019, and then he stays the state of emergency in 2020 through the pandemic, which essentially means that he has ruled most of his term under a state of exemption. Under, so Salvadorans have lost their constitutional rights since then. Uh, and and the, 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 the origin of the state of exception that we're currently in has to do, this is the part that people miss or don't get or don't want to see about Bukele. Why did he stay the state of exception in, in March 2022? Because the gangs killed 87 Salvadorans in one weekend. And why did the gangs kill 87 Salvadorans in one weekend? Because Bukele had a truce with the gangs. This is deeply documented, not only by us at El Faro, uh, but also by other investigations. The U.S. Department of Treasury has sanctioned people. The, the Department of State has sanctioned people for, for this. Now they don't remember. Now they are calling him democratically elected, congratulating him because that's just how the U.S. operates. But there was a, a truce, a negotiation with the gangs, electoral support, uh, a decline in homicides in exchange for pre- benefits in prison. Uh, the U.S. has even gone on to say that they have given money to prisons, uh, to gang leaders in prison. But the most obvious, and I, I know maybe people are hearing me and, 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 and are, are expecting that Bukele is this, you know, wonder world and paradise and I'm just a position. Okay, don't believe me. I don't I don't need people to believe me. But I would point you out to Google Crook, MS13 Crook, 
because this was a gang leader that, that was sentenced to 40 years of prison. He still had 40 years of prison left in Salvador. He was let go by the Bukele administration. We published audios of a Bukele official, Carlos Marroquin, saying that he personally took him out of prison, took him to Guatemala, and then just this November, Krug was arrested in Mexico and deported. Well, not deported, but he was transferred to, to, to Houston, and now he's in jail uh, on charges of terrorism in the United States. So this is Krug is the living proof that there was a gang involved, a, a negotiation with gangs and the government. If not, why is he not in prison, or what, why was he not extradited? And Bukele, uh, you know, filled his mouth saying that uh, if you, if the international community so wants gang members, take them, adopt these little angels. That, that's the way he speaks about it. The United States was claiming this guy, and they said, "Okay, give us this guy. We're going to prosecute him." in New York, and they didn't, and they haven't extradited any mm. of the gang leaders. Why? Because when they are in a nice Long Island jail cell negotiating, they are going to sing like birds. Uh, and Bukele doesn't want that because it right. messes up with his image. So I want to get on to um, all that negotiating um, and deal-making with the gangs and the way that uh, Bukele has managed it seems to you know drastically reduce the murder rate and indeed the degree of extortion that goes on as well. So I want to come on to that in just a second, but I think to give maybe listeners a sense of what the state of emergency was like, whether during the pandemic and indeed the one that then was introduced in March 2022, what, what's that been like for ordinary citizens? Is it something that you notice on the streets of San Salvador or is it something that it, it happens um, on the peripheries, um, what does it look? Is it people being stopped by the police, searched, harassment? Uh, what is it like? In poor neighborhoods, yeah. I, I don't think people realize what the pandemic was like for us because they, they, we didn't have public spaces in the pandemic. We didn't, we, we don't have many public spaces in El Salvador, but there was a prohibition of everything. Essentially, you needed your ID number to go into to, to go buy groceries and if you didn't have uh, there was a system the last number of your id number uh, if it was nine you could go on monday or wednesday and if not they you wouldn't be allowed to to shop uh there, there was a, a public transportation ban he essentially ordered all public transportation to stop in the country uh, so people because they need to go to work because we don't have savings we don't have checks we don't have that, that kind of thing. We had $300 checks at one time. But what can you do for that for six months? Um, so people were like cramping on, on, on pickup trucks to, to, to move around. Uh, people were arrested and taken to contention centers, like essentially going to prison for 30 days just for walking in the street without a permit. Um, so so wow. w w w when people complain in the Western Hemisphere about what the COVID was really like, you haven't lived in an authoritarian state. And then you have, uh, which is for me, I don't know, very, uh, it, it makes me, my blood boil a little bit, uh, that then you have these libertarian technocratics celebrating how Bukele has made this into a, a, a world, a, a, a world leader of freedom. When if you had been a Salvadoran living in a poor neighborhood and your government had done all of these things during the pandemic, you would have been crying and dictator, dictator. Mm. But if yeah. it's not happening to you or it's not happening to white people, then it's okay. Uh, it's, it's absurd. 
So that I mean that looks like it was a bit of a trial run for the state of emergency that, that that's yeah. then brought in in 2022 in response to this new wave of killings. What how was how was the new state of emergency which remains in place? How 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 is that different there, from there, the one so that was there's a significant difference that during the pandemic state of emergency we had a constitutional court an independent constitutional court that essentially said to Bukele, you cannot do these things. You, you, you need to have more controls. And Bukele went on television decrying these justices and said, if I was a dictator, I would have them all killed. And it would be a fair exchange because I would just be sacrificing five lives in exchange of many. They are telling me to go to let Salvadorans be killed because of the virus. Uh, so that's the, you know, that's the, the, his democratic character and his gracious character of not having people, uh, uh, you know, rounded up and, and, and killed uh, just because they don't think like him. So when Bukele, he won the midterm elections by landslide and what the first thing he did, and by that point, he had a lot of power. He had uh, the executive branch, the legislative branch, and then he used his legislative branch power to take over illegally the constitutional court. Uh, the Salvadoran Supreme Court has 15 justices and every term gets to elect five. So you, you, you get to renovate a third of it. The Bukele election has elected 10. Uh, so so it, it, it's, it's illegal, uh, but people don't seem to care because, uh, first of all, the homicides went down. And then with the other, uh, when the agreement with the gangs went down, he really put an iron fist, rounded up over 75,000 people in less than two years and that has made a a, a, a a change in communities and we can go on about that but i think that is basis of popularity but it's all done in a in a political landscape where you have no oversight you have no checks and balances you cannot consider this a democracy see if you don't if a single person controls every institution in the state maybe people can define that as what you want. I don't think we would pass any democratic, uh, you know, checkbook or, or any democratic uh, list of, 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 of characteristics that make something democratic. El Salvador wouldn't pass and he wouldn't have passed it for years now. It'd be interesting to get a sense on the ground what it has been like in El Salvador over the past decade or so because the murder rate was so extremely high, one of the highest in the world, comparable to levels of civil war. Indeed, I think at certain points, the murder rate in El Salvador was higher than the than it was during El Salvador's own civil war. And I guess you might, I don't know if you're, you might be skeptical of some of the reporting on the numbers uh, today on how much the murder rate has actually fallen. But nevertheless, I think it would be, uh, you know, uh, fairly universal consensus, I would imagine, that the murder rate has fallen. So what was the violence like in the mid-2010s, I think, when it reached its peak? And how is it different well, now? It, it It's very different. I mean, El Salvador, we, we cannot compare it to civil war violence because the numbers of the civil war were not reliable. It was under a, a dictatorship. Uh, uh, there were all, at least 75,000 persons killed in 10 years. So it, it's it's non-comparable. But after the war, certainly there were peaks of violence. And we can explain by different things. The post-war years were especially violent because there was a lot of crime. And there was, you know, 
you you don't stop a killing machine on its tracks. It it it, it takes some time, and there was some type of rebuilding that when the country was rebuilding, the Clinton administration sent back thousands of, of, of deported gang members that created the gang problem then was very poorly handled by the right-wing government. And then Actually, they, if, they, if I can just in, interrupt you there, because it might be useful to explain that history as well. So, I mean, the, these two main gangs in El Salvador, MS-13 and Barrio 18, they emerged from the U.S., right? Yeah, they are born in California, in, in, in Los Angeles. They, they, well, the Barrio 18 is a an all-time gang that has had been in, in California for a long time, I think probably the 20s or 30s. Uh, and then the MS-13 is a band uh, that was formed with the sons of Salvadoran exiles or, or refugees during the war uh, that weren't really accepted by any of the other gangs in the, in the California ecosystem. So they banded together, they created MS-13. It was Mara Salvatrucha stoners at that time and then they eventually uh, got the, the, the number 13, which is related to the Mexican mafia. Uh, and then it was the Clinton administration that decided at the mid 90s, 96, 97, to start deporting them to El Salvador to a country that essentially had weak institutions or no institutions in some cases. Uh, and, and this created a, a snowball of a problem that, 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 that became the scorch of the Salvadoran people for decades. So the situation was pretty dire. In 2015, we had a homicide rate of 105 for every 100,000 inhabitants. So it, it, it was pretty dire. The gangs had territorial control on a lot of the neighborhoods and, and different solutions were tried out. Uh, Manodura, as they call it, like the uh, strong hand. Uh, there was a, a previous truce in 2012, uh, but none of them really worked to to to. to to solve this problem. So Bukele tried the two things in five years. He first established a truce and then he established uh, a, a, a real uh, iron fist. Um, but obviously things have changed for Salvadorans. This, you have to, 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 to acknowledge this is a country that has only seven years of school in average. So, and, and, and all of these things that we talk about in political circles and like the rule of law and democracy and all of these things, were essentially empty words, uh, empty promises for a lot of people. So what is happening in El Salvador has also to be an indictment of what happens when democracy fails to deliver um, because people don't seem to care about democracy any more than going to elections. Uh, and that's about that's what democracy is about. And the whole legitimacy of the Bukele regime now is that millions have voted for him. We don't know how many on Sunday because we have no results till we're recording this podcast. Uh, but uh, people seem content with that. And I think the main reason of his popularity is that people seem, uh, uh, that they feel safer. And we have reported on this. We have gone to communities. We have essentially said that Bukele has this article or dismantled the, the way gangs operated. Homicides have gone down a lot. They have not gone down as much as the government says it, it, it has the, 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 because the government is toying around with the statistics. They are, for instance, if, if someone they say is a criminal dies, uh, they don't count as a murder or, or they don't count. You know, they're telling a lot. There has been report about it. But the homicide number has gone down significantly. And uh, one of the key aspects of the Bukele administration is to keep everything under lock. 
So we don't have much access to public information, but we have reports that people are not longer paying extortion to the gangs in a lot of sites. So that there's just been a dismantling. Besides that, uh, there's very little that we can know for sure in the Bukele administration. And things are, uh, besides that, have essentially remained the same. Immigration to the United States remains high. Remittances are are still one quarter of the economy. There's no new job creation. and and uh, the poverty has gone up. Poverty has gone up almost five points under Bukele's administration. Um, so, so things have not changed essentially uh, uh, outside of that. But people feel safer, and when you feel safer, I mean, if I had, I I I'm, I'm privileged in in this country. I'm part of the ten percent because I got to go to college, and only ten percent of this country got gets to go to college. Um, but if I had lived in a, a gang-controlled territory, uh, yeah, I, there would be a, a pretty strong appeal to voting for this government. I still know a lot of people in, the, in those neighborhoods who think this is not democracy. It's not good that a person controls all the power. Um, but but there's no denying the change that has been. So uh, the violence itself, I mean, from my experience here in, in the state of Sao Paulo, for example, I mean, the reason why Sao Paulo has a much lower homicide rate than it once used to, which used to be very high, is because uh, one gang has a monopoly, basically, and it's the largest uh, drug trafficking gang in, in South America. And so um, crime has gone down, whereas in other states in Brazil, um, the murder rate is very high, and that's because of conflicts over territory between drug gangs. Why was it so high in, in El Salvador? Is it because of conflicts between those two gangs? Um, where did that violence actually come from? Well, it, it had to do with, 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 with gang turf control. That That's part of it, but a, uh, a lot of it... Um, it depends. Uh, for instance, in 2015, when we had that the high murder rate I was talking about, uh, the difference was that we had just gone out of a truce and the police uh, and the government essentially declared the war on gangs. So there was a lot of infighting. There was, uh, when we reported gangs attacking soldiers and policemen uh, over, I don't know, 70,000, uh, murders of policemen in a year, maybe more. I don't remember the, the exact figures. Uh, the police was killing a lot of gang members in so-called, uh, you know, like face-offs. Uh, that and, and, and also there were death squads operating inside the police. And I don't know, we we as a country are a history of violence that we... We we come from from the the, the the Spanish invasion in 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 the 1400s and that obviously starts a tradition of violence that has never really stopped. And in 1932, uh, we had a gen- uh, indigenous genocide and nobody really paid the penalties for that. Nobody was judged for that. Then we uh, that inaugurated a period of military dictatorship. Then we had the civil war. And then after the Civil War, we had this very short-lived democratic era from 1992 to this past Sunday, um, where we, we 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 had a democracy. But the, for instance, the the, tra- the crimes of the Civil War were never really judged. There, there, there's no top official convicted in El Salvador for massacres that involved thousands of people, the innocents. So we have a tradition, a, a, a long romance with impunity in this country. Uh, and that creates a culture of impunity and that creates a culture of violence. Uh, 
so it, it it you will have to see specifically what's happening in each period but uh we have as a society a history of violence in a context obviously of, of poverty of low growth few opportunities these gangs are able to hoover up lots of young men in particular um and that becomes a form of economic activity what actually is their economic activity i mean where do they are they trafficking drugs it's, is it mainly extortion what is their principal activity yeah they they, they they the money they got was for, mainly for extortion but you have to understand i think i i, I guess the the, the 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 gangs are criminal organizations but the 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 alternative that the society was giving to people uh, to, to to young people in in in, in gang controlled neighborhoods was uh, don't be a gang member go get this excruciating job and win three hundred dollars a month and, and and try to support your family in that so the appeal for a lot of people there was talks about more than fifty thousand uh, yeah fifty thousand gang members in Salvador was that you wouldn't uh, you you wouldn't have to endure all of that. You would have access to money and access to some level of respect through fear and intimidation and crime in the community. Um, but you would be a someone. It, it was different to be, you know, the low-level employee at this company earning pennies than to be a gang member or or, or a member of the clique. And that's, that, that was the appeal. And it's a desperate situation. It's a dire situation. The gangs are criminals. The gangs are crime members. But uh, I, 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 I guess you would have to be in that situation to, 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 to see. And, and most of us cannot even imagine having to, to decide between those odds. But the reality is that even if violence has gone down and, and, and crime has gone down, the conditions that created the gangs are still here. That hasn't sure. changed at all in, in this country. So what is the basis of, uh, like, in particularly the class basis of Bukele's support? Um, is it, because I, I understand, obviously, in those neighborhoods where they're, which are most afflicted by violence, has maybe some support, but at the same time, those are also the people who are getting rounded up often, you know, without trial and thrown in prison. Yeah, I, I what I would say is that in uh, for Bukele, um, people is very happy with Bukele until they are not. And when they are not, there's nothing that you can really do because he controls the court, the attorney general, the police, the army, uh, everything that there is con to, to control. So if you are a part, if, if you live in a gun-controlled neighborhood and you are not a relative of anybody who has been unfairly arrested or is rotting in jail for months or years, uh, then it's a, there's a very likely possibility that you're very happy with it. If, if you have been directly affected uh, by it, you might be less happy about it. Um, but then, and, and then polling shows that uh, the more money you have, uh, the, the more income you have, or the, the higher you low in the income bracket, the less you like Bukele, and the higher you go in the education bracket, the less you like Bukele. Uh, so, so, so that's pretty clear. And then, uh, I don't know. You you will have to think what have what what it takes for a man to become a dictatorship and control every aspect of the power. And you have to 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 realize that uh, Bukele's rival in 2019 was calling people to vote in a civic and uh, democratic party on Sunday. Uh, and we're talking about the hair of a million uh, one one of the millionaire 
companies in El Salvador. There, there's a quake happening uh, as we speak, so I'm a little distracted because it's uh, really strong. This happens a lot, quite a lot in this country. Wow, I mean, you can't tell it from the image, actually. So I... <laughs> it, It's still happening, uh, so I'm sorry about that. Maybe you'll have to edit it. I'm just trying to see that the buildings so... are not. I, I, I think I'm good. So the millionaires, the, 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 the people that... The, the, the allow Bukele to take control. The millionaires have been with Bukele. The, 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 the wealthiest families of the, the of the country have been with Bukele. And I think we have seen what we saw perhaps in Nicaragua, that the, the wealthy, the super wealthy class is very content with him until they are not. Uh, but but uh, we, we have seen a lot of fear and I would say cowardice from a, a lot of people who could say, have something to say because the people that are left saying, uh, you know, the us crazy people that are pointing out that the emperor is naked uh, are, are are few. And, 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 and we, I consider it myself and, 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 and my position in this society, one of responsibility, one of speaking out for a lot of people that are very afraid of speaking out because, you know, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. And we have seen what happens to people who oppose Bukele. The exception regime has been used not only to confront uh, or, or to go against gang members, but they have also uh, incarcerated uh, environmental leaders, uh, political opposition. Uh, it's pretty blatant if you like. If you don't want to believe Bukele is. Uh, an authoritarian, you could, but it's pretty blatant that all the signs are there. Uh, so so, so that, that's a part of it. I mean, I guess one devil's advocate argument you could make in favor of Bukele is that, yes, it's all um, anti-democratic, authoritarian, um, trampling on civil liberties, etc. But that the dealing with a gang situation and reducing the level of violence and insecurity is basically an attempt for the by the state to keep up its very basic sort of Hobbesian uh, bargain with the citizenry to basically keep people safe and and that um, this strong hand will at least provide the um, space and, and capacity for for politics and normal economic life to actually happen um, and so it might be distasteful but it might be necessary. What would you say to that? It's very easy to say that when you don't have a personal stake. Uh, when, when when it's not your son or daughter who is unfairly imprisoned, when it's not your relative who has died in, in jail, when it's not your father, like Carolina Maya's father, who was arrested for months, it's very easy to, to just call it out as collateral damage. When you're not the one looking for your disappeared son because they say, won't say to you in what prison he's in. It's, 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 it's super easy to say it. And I that, 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 that's what we keep trying to do. Let's see the human side of it. I don't believe the argument that you need uh, a state of exemption uh, to, 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 to deal with this forever. It, 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 how exceptional it is, we've been almost two, two years with this. Uh, I don't believe that you need to take away all of our rights. You know what the state of exception is like. Uh, they, they, they get to, to seize your communication to, or to spy your communication without judicial warrant. If you are arrested, you don't get the right to an attorney. 
uh, if you you they are augmented or they uh, increased the the pre-trial detention to over two years, they don't fulfill legal terms. I mean, it's very easy to say and it's very easy to defend when it's not being applied to you. But if it was being applied to you, you would want people like us, journalists and human rights defenders to speak out and say, hey, this isn't fair. Obviously, I don't think a lot of the people who were just clinging on survival would say these arguments or would or, or would even care. They are happier and they are entitled and they are, are in the right to be happier because their lives have increased. That doesn't mean that everything that that Mr. President does is fair. And we are, what we are saying is that it's not legal under the, the Salvadoran law. It doesn't seem to matter, but we, I think, even as a historical, uh, you know, Uh, side note there there had it has to be noted someone said this isn't right so uh, bukele's success in reducing the murder rate um and in extortion um by many reports that i've read it seems that people attest to the fact that the amount of extortion going on um or the regularity or the amount that people are having to pay has is, is greatly reduced so how durable do you think that situation is um, whether you put it down to Bukele arresting huge swathes of people I think like two percent of the population is now in prison or um, whether it's the deal making with the gangs that they come to some arrangement um, maybe you could also tell us about some of that um, some of that deal making kind of what the nature of those arrangements actually are but, but also you know irrespective of, of what you put it down to how durable do you think this is we don't know it depends on, on how much I, I think the IMF might have a say on this. Bukele is still seeking for a large agreement around 1.3 billion with the IMF. And if they do give him, we will have the 2024 to whatever uh, Bukele dictatorship sponsored by the IMF. Um, but uh, the, the, the economic situation is dire. There has been talks, uh, huge talks of Uh, uh, the government need to be bailed out or the government not being able to afford the international debt. Um, and, you know, keeping... Uh, there was around 40,000 people in prison in El Salvador before the state of exception. So plus 75,000, you're talking about maybe 120,000 people uh, in prison. That's not cheap to, 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 to maintain for how long. And they are talking about doing mass trials of 900 people so uh, at a time. And they have reformed the laws to do that. So how are you, and if you convict them all to 40 years in prison, how, how much is that bill? Uh, mm. This is not a rich country. So uh, the, the, that sustainability has to be linked directly with the economic sustainability of the regime. Um, so, so of course, that is a question. Uh, and the other part is, is that there has been a lot of corruption in his government. There has been a lot of looting. We have published, uh, not only El Faro, but Salvadoran Journal has published uh, stories about the Minister of Health, uh, Francisco Lavi, buying uh, medical supplies for, for from his family's company during the pandemic. We have talked about the Bukele whip, the Christian Guevara, getting a million dollars in contracts to, to renew hospitals during the pandemic. We, 
we have uh, revealed how Vice Minister of Security Osiris Luna sold uh, groceries, 42,000 bags of groceries that were intended for the hungry. In the pandemic, he, he acquired, he sold them for personal profit. We have, uh, I could, you know, I could go, I could go on and on and on. Uh, so there's also because Bukele's campaign motto is the money is enough for no one stealing. Well, we have proven there's a lot of people taking money out of it, and that doesn't help the economic sustainability of, of it all. So, yeah, I, I cannot answer your question, but I do have that question. Okay, so just I mean, just two more questions, one on, on politics and the other um, on economics. Firstly, what opposition do you see uh, remaining to Bukele? Or indeed, do you see any kind of opposition emerging, particularly from the working class and poor in it, who um, at some point might get fed up with having their kids rounded up and arrested, for example? Where there is power, there is always going to be opposition. So um, in terms of politically organized opposition, we don't know because we don't have any idea of how many congressmen from opposition parties. We have four opposition parties. We don't know how many of them will get a seat in Congress. And as I've been telling you, the, 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 the elections have been absolutely fraudulent from the not, not just the presidential Ronald Pukele, which is unconstitutional, and it should be said so, uh, but we we don't have uh, we don't even have a number of of the votes, and we don't even have the chain of custody of the ballots has been broken. This has been uh, this has been denounced by several of the opposition parties just these days after the election. So we don't have any idea of of, of that number. Uh, we just have the number that Bukele has said that he has, and. Yeah, I, I honestly have this question: if if the if the votes are going to be counted, or if they are just going to make them go to what Bukele desire is. Uh, this is, of course, a dictatorship. So you 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 uh, you have to take that into account. If that happens, or how does that happen? We we're about to see. Um, but there is opposition. We we had a march of teachers who haven't been paid in uh, j just days before the election. We have the the, the, re the relatives of imprisoned people, the, the defenders of in innocence. We have the journalists. We have the human rights defenders. We have the environmentalists. We have the students from the the only national university which has been occupied for three years. With the government owes money to millions of dollars in budget that they haven't assigned to. So you have. Uh, what I always describe is that is if Bukele is working a four burner kitchen and there's things boiling in them constantly. So at one time, maybe one will overflow and, and that's when you will see the other side of Bukele, the one that we are warning of, that he has all the pieces of the chess and that he's going to use them when that popularity runs out. Because I also believe in gravity. And, and, and you know, he cannot go any higher than this. 80% approval. Uh, a two-term, uh, a re-election and constitutional re-election, but re-election nevertheless, he cannot go any higher than this. So the only way that he can continue to go down, if we believe in physics and the laws of trajectory, is down. And when he goes down, he has prepared himself to deal with the opposition, with the, to deal with critical voices when he goes down. And how will he deal with him? Well, we have to look at what Nicaragua did in 2018, we have to look at, at, at Venezuela. We have to look at every military dictatorship. 
Um, and that's why w where I see things going. I don't know when. I don't know, maybe in a couple months, in a couple years, in a decade. But uh, I don't think he can remain popular forever if, if public opinion is very feeble. Mm -hmm. So one last question, just to finish off. Uh, there's a lot of talk of Bukele serving as a model across the region, a talk of adoption of Bukelismo. Uh, part of that, I mean, the main part of that is the his role in fighting crime. Now, I wonder how effective that model is and how appealing that model is if there isn't also some sort of economic success story to sell there. Is there any economic success story to, to sell? Um, even his um, much talked about initiative of making Bitcoin legal tender seems to maybe be something he'll have to ditch to get an IMF loan. So what is there of, of you know, what is his legacy so far in, in, in economic terms? Well, he, he has increased, uh, poverty has increased five points almost in, in, in his future terms and economy has replaced uh, insecurity as the main concern of, 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 of the population uh, because he has touted El Salvador as such a, a, a paradise to come live. There's a lot of gentrification happening, especially near the shores. So the cost of living is increasing for those of us who live here and not, you know, like European and Americans who just come down here uh, because they hear this. So they are able to afford the rents that we're not able to afford and we are left in situations that okay, how can we afford rent every month? This is a question that I make myself every month. Uh, and this is a question that every Salvadoran is making myself. My generation, I'm 32-year-old, my generation doesn't dream of owning a house in, in, in El Salvador. So in terms of economic legacy, uh, I don't know, maybe in five years, maybe he, maybe he is everything he says he is. Maybe he's, you know, the, the Messiah that was to come to save us all from our sins. Uh, I don't personally believe that, and and they haven't been successful uh, economically. But the, I, I think people should be cautious when they when they want bucalismo. Okay, you you want bucalismo? You want to forfeit your rights? You want the police to be able to seek your house without a warrant? You want a gang caught with the a deal caught with the gangs? You want to have no uh, information whatsoever about what the government does with money? You have you, you want everything to be reserved from the number of homicides to the number of deaths during the pandemic to the how many advisors does a congressman have to how much they travel. Uh, everything that I just said and I could go on and on is under lock in El Salvador and it's going to be under lock for seven years because they control the institutions. Uh, so the, the, the bucalismo is not just the fancy parts that you see in the in the paid YouTuber trips or, 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 or the influencers in TikTok. You have to see the larger picture, everything that glitter is in gold. Uh, all right, Nelson, thank you very much. That was uh, hugely informative. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay, thank you for having me. here now with Juan Rojas, who's a columnist on Latin America at Compact Magazine and written widely on the political affairs of uh, countries well all across the region. So we're going to be discussing in a little bit more depth what's going on in El Salvador, what Bukele is, what Bukelismo might be, uh, and what influence 
his rule in El Salvador might be having on the rest of the continent. Hi, Juan. Welcome. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Yeah, it's good. It's been it, it, podcast. Yeah, well, it's it's been uh, it's been a while that, that this should have happened, and and uh, no doubt it'll happen in the future about other countries in the region. But um, let's get let's get cracking on El Salvador. Um, not to repeat too much of what we've just heard uh, in in the previous interview, um, but my understanding and the gist that I got also from the work that you've done on on El Salvador is that. Uh, it's more the negotiations with gangs than the mass incarceration, which is what's worked in really bringing down uh, the murder rate. Is that your kind of feeling on the, on this as well? That's a good question because it depends how you look at it. So if we start from 2015, which was the peak um, homicide rate in the past 15 years, this current state of exception is responsible for at best like 5% of the reduction in murders. Mm. But if you look at it, but the thing at the same time, the state of exception is still notable in the sense that it got murders below the homicide rate below a point that no one really thought possible. Really in the past negotiations with gangs had managed to get the homicide rate from around like 103 to I think like 17 or maybe yeah, yeah, per 100,000. Yeah. Yeah. For 100,000 uh, in 2022. But after the state of exception, yeah, it's been able to go allegedly now in 2024 to around like two per 100,000, which is around the same rate as Canada. Yeah. That's I mean, it, pretty it, it's pretty remarkable. It's crazy. I, even if you think the numbers are cooked um, and they may mm-hmm. well be to, to, to so, some Yeah. They're, they're adjusted a bit. But but even so, I mean that's still a, a remarkable reduction. But a reduction that had already started, you know, it was coming down from its peak before Bukele even took office. Um, so I wonder what exactly. it seemed to be. A, there was already negotiations going uh, on between the former president, who was of the FMLN of the kind of left wing party there. That was there was they were bringing down the murder rate because of through those some arrangement with with the gangs and these things are obviously always kind of covert you never really know the details of it um and but bukele has continued that decline and yet it's hard to know exactly what to attribute it to um obviously all the um i mean his internal um propaganda uh, mm-hmm. And also, what his cheerleaders say will be pointing to. Well, look, he's just been hard on crime and has just locked all these people up, um, just swept up huge swathes. I mean, the numbers are still. I mean, it bears repeating. Two percent like of, of the population, entire population. Yeah, it, it bears repeating. Like you know, I said it in the introduction to this podcast, but worth saying again. I mean, just kind of staggering numbers. You know, you know, in a country of uh, you know six and a half million or something like that. So, um, but. You know, he is uh, prone to, and as he would be, uh, to emphasize that aspect. But it's not entirely clear, I think, yeah, exactly how to attribute this. And the thing about that is that after the state of exception, there's a lot of credible evidence suggesting that he's still negotiating with the gangs. So um, El Faro's done reporting on this eyewitness uh, testimony of um, non-gang members that were in prison during the state of exception have reported that they actually are treated worse than gang members and gang members receive a lot of special privileges. Mm. So my take is that Bukele has found a way to combine both things at the same time, continue negotiating with gangs and also imprison vast numbers of gang members through the state of exception. But it's, it is a bit tenuous. And this is why the big question 
that everyone should be focusing on is what happens when or if the state of exception ends. Because, and the gangs are more than just a, a criminal actor. They're, they're a social phenomenon with familiar ties to their communities and stuff like that. So right. there, there's also a lot of evidence that suggests that they haven't been completely disarticulated, as he likes to claim. And some of the number of the government's own numbers are a bit suspicious. Well, I think that, I mean, there's so many things to unpick there. I think it's worth dwelling a second on what exactly the gangs are. And I mean, gangs across Latin America, you know, differ um, in terms of their role, their place within kind of larger infrastructures and networks of whether it's, you know, drug trafficking or just local extortion. Um, it seems that the gangs in El Salvador depend quite a lot on on just extortion locally um, of getting people to pay for protection. Um, more than they, more than some of the more celebrated gangs, which are, you know, in Mexico or Brazil, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where they're known for trafficking. Yeah, in in that sense, technically, when you refer to a gang, it's it's just a an, a criminal organization that operates on the street, and they tend to have yeah more social bonds, whereas a, a cartel is a purely criminal organization. A lot of times, it's businessmen that decide to go into that profession, if you could call it that. Um, for example, yeah, in Colombia, you know, the famous Medellin cartel, a lot of those were like landed oligarchs, essentially, that just decided to go into the drug trade. Um, but they are a bit different and, and exactly their finances differ. I mean, there are gangs like the PCC in Brazil that are actively involved in drug trafficking, but actually the indication in Central America uh, regarding MS-13 and Barrio 18 is a lot more tenuous that they're that involved in drug trafficking, especially large-scale regional drug trafficking to the United States. They might be selling on the streets, and a lot of the gang members also consume drugs, but their chief means of financing is extortion, extorting the local vendor. Hey, you need to pay me 20% of your earnings every week, stuff like that. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, selling selling drugs nationally uh, in a country as small as El Salvador is not enough to give these gangs the kind of um, footprint that they... You know, exactly, they would, they would need. I mean, that there's just not enough revenue there for for that. So, one of the things that um, I mean, Bukele sells himself on, you know, effectively providing peace um, of holding up a kind of you know basic Hobbes Hobbes in bargain with the citizenry. Um, but are the gangs themselves being destroyed? Because you know, it's, the longer these things uh, perpetuate themselves, uh, the more they infiltrate the the state um, and erode. The state's like effective sovereignty. So I don't know. I didn't really get a sense of um, you know how much they are actually being taken apart. It's hard to know because the there's also a lot of credible reporting from just ordinary Salvadorans that claim that um, the gangs are no longer extorting them. When you look at the numbers. There is an indication that extortion is still going on, but clearly much less than before. And that's key because that does mean that the gangs are suffering a significant financial blow. On the other hand, there are other numbers that are less promising. For instance, before the state of exception, in the in the years before the state of exception, way more arms from the gangs were um, seized by authorities, something like 500 in 2021 versus only like 100 in 2022 and 2023 which uh, inside crime has done some analysis on that their findings suggest that the gangs are actively concealing a lot of their arsenals and waiting for later that's a strong indication that they haven't been destroyed or disarticulated 
Uh, I, I mean, after all, they are uh, the gangs are primarily a prison phenomenon with the leadership mainly all being in jail. This is similar in Brazil and in Ecuador. Uh, a key difference there, actually, that, that's interesting with Ecuador is that in um, a lot of the problem that precipitated the current crisis in Ecuador was a loss of control in the prisons where really it was just the gangs that weren't in charge. And that's a factor that's key. It's who's really in charge here. It does seem like I, I wouldn't deny that uh, the government in El Salvador has more power, but there was a case where one of Bukele's ministers was observed entering one of the prison with guard, mass guards that seemed to be gang members. That was reported on by, by El Faro. There, another interesting case was um, Elmer Cárdenas, a gang member who was due to be, or who the U.S. had requested for extradition, and the Salvadoran authorities abruptly released him dropped all charges against them, just released them into the streets. So that's also quite suspicious. The U.S. is currently investigating Bukele. There's a case against him uh, for negotiating with gangs. So, Yeah, I mean, that does seem to be so present. And, and there's cases that we can think of, obviously, from, from uh, across, the, across the region where there's been also, you know, over a shorter or mid mid range period of time, where m- numbers drop in terms of you know particularly homicides as the main indicator, um, and it become and it then is revealed that there's some accord between politicians. Without getting onto the regional um, picture yet, we might worth dwelling a little bit on the kind of economics of El Salvador and what um, what Bukele's rule looks like. I I kind of provocatively asked in in the previous interview whether he uh whether he he's a sort of tony blair figure you know whether he's a kind of third way <laughs> third way but albeit be set you know in the 2020s and not in the uh and not in the 1990s so the vibe's a bit different it's a bit more populist obviously and of course it's set in a much poorer country um where the the state is weaker and so on but nevertheless you know there's um, some infrastructural investment, but there's also slashing or privatizing public services. Um, he's increased pensions and and the minimum wage, but at the same time, um, you know, has car- has well has arrested striking workers. So there's a kind of a a third way kind of vibe there, especially if one considers the combination of you know certain populist, economically populist measures with some very kind of technocratic aspects obviously the probably the most mm-hmm. obvious being the, the the sort of bitcoin utopia yeah. that he's create and it's failing to do so it's important to say so yeah it's a complete debacle yeah so it, it seems like a kind of a, a neoliberal with economically populist measures to bolster support which to me does sound kind of yeah kind of third way-ish <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's a good way of putting it i mean he himself bills himself as a kind of third way um, well, previously candidate, but now president in the sense that his narrative is that he represents a break with the past, the two-party system of ARENA and FMLN. And um, interestingly, this plays out in a kind of uh, disturbing way that uh, he's like stopped prosecutions against uh, those that committed crimes during uh, the Salvadoran Civil War and uh, if you mm. saw this on Twitter, he tore down the statue that the FMLN put up celebrating the end of the Civil War, um, which uh, anyway, let, let's not go into that. But his view is that this, you know, talking about these things are a device that we need to move forward. Let's try to just forget this. 
And he, in, in, in ideological terms, you look at his party, Nuevas Ideas, and it's a big tent party. Most of the membership actually comes from the FMLN because he himself was part of the FMLN. He's a kind of ideological shapeshifter. At one point, he was quoted as saying he was part of the radical left. Um, but he's also a businessman. So he'll naturally have some kind of libertarian proclivities. Also, uh, El Salvador's financial situation is not great. They're heavily in debt and ha- have a really tight situation. But so yeah, you do see this mix where he's willing to spend more, for instance, on public uh, works. And there are these great yeah, libraries and uh, trains that he's building, all this kind of, uh, all these investments that he's made that naturally require a lot of spending. But he seems to have made up for it, on the other hand, by cutting other services. Yeah, he like cut funding for like 13 of the country's 30 hospitals and expediently, thanks to the state of exception, arrested workers that were demanding back pay. So it's it's all very convenient, but kind of to be expected if you know who he is. So um, to move on to kind of the regional picture, because um, it's kind of widely talked about. I mean, I had a, a piece open here from uh, Folha de São Paulo, uh, the kind of newspaper of record in Brazil, yeah. which has a list of um, other countries in the region who have um, tried to institute or promised to do so uh, certain policies very similar to Bukele or even citing him by name. Um, and you can run through it. Um, it's probably not worth dwelling on each uh, example. But, you know, here there's example from Guatemala, Honduras, Jamaica, Haiti, Colombia, Ecuador, Paraguay, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Peru, and so on. Um, and obviously not all of these have heads of state who have tried to implement Bukele-like policies. Um but some have, and I think Ecuador is probably the most obvious one that's being talked about because mm-hmm. of its crisis, because of its indeed its state of emergency that's been declared there. So yeah. um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's happened in Ecuador um, and how the Bukele model fits in with that. Ecuador is interesting because um, the way I see it, a, a state of exception is totally warranted. The country quite literally uh, a month ago was engulfed into a crisis, a serious emergency. And the preliminary numbers are actually encouraging that the number of homicides have gone down, I think, from like 30 to 9 per day. But this is very early on. But the problem with these states of exception, every country under the sun in Latin America has tried states of exception. But as I said before, as soon as you end the state of exception, what happens to everyone that was arrested? Typically, they all go free because the uh, systems of justice in Latin America are so poor. You have to gather evidence, try each individual gang member. A lot of times there's mistrials. There's not enough judges. The prosecutors are not competent. It's really, really tough. And so th- that's that's essentially the, the reason why uh, criminality is able to thrive. I mean, there's crime is actually an extremely complicated phenomenon. There's lots of debates for whether, um, you know, reducing poverty will actually reduce crime. There's situations where that's not the case and other cases where it is. All of these factors go together. But uh, in the case of Ecuador, uh, I would argue that most likely, as soon as the state of exception ends, a lot of the security gains will... I mean, it might be better than before, but it'll prob- they'll probably evaporate. Noah's predecessor, 
um, instituted multiple states of exception, 60-day states of exception, and in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really do much. Uh, similarly, uh, Lasso is quoted as saying that he would never do what Bukele has done because it's not democratic and Ecuadorians would never stand for it. Similarly, I don't think that Noah would go that direction either. Noah seems like a sincere Democrat. He's, he's kind of a, a center-right figure. You know, he's a banana oligarch, essentially. But uh, I, I wouldn't think that uh, his, his uh, background and his term of office so far doesn't really suggest to me that he would be willing to go the distance that Bukele has. Or that he could, because there's a lot of other problems of being able to indefinitely um, uh, renew a state of exception the way Bukele has because countries like Ecuador still have checks and balances, whereas El Salvador d- does not. One I mean, last thing it, before it, I, yeah. I, I turn it to you also, the other important example is next door in Honduras that actually has prolonged a state of exception since November 2022. And it's been nowhere near as successful as the Salvadoran one. It's actually reduced homicides, evidently. But we have a, the data shows that most of those that have been arrested do not ultimately go to prison, unlike in El Salvador. Right. Yeah. I mean, and just to dwell on the Ecuadorian case, because that used to be a country which was one of the safer ones in, Safest, in the region, yeah. one, mm-hmm. um, and which seemed to have you know successful some advances under Rafael Correa in in kind of from the end of the two thousands into the, the early twenty tens, um, and who then more recently has been criticized by the right for having been soft on crime and trying to pin the blame on him, which seems to be completely un, not true, basically. Um, it has to do, as with many of these cases, to do with criminal markets, right? And how those uh-huh. shift and change. Uh-huh. Um, we have to be kind of a bit economistic on this regard. And mm-hmm. it, it is the fact that Ecuador became a central, you know, export, um, you know, exporting place for, for uh, drugs coming from Colombia and from Peru and so on. Um, and it's the presence and strength of those gangs which has changed the situation and also led to um, led to the massive increase in, in homicides there. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's a it, it, it's that's an interesting one to parse because I've read some compelling accounts that suggest that some of what Correa did in the sense of his management of prisons, the lo- the state's loss of control of its over what was going on in its own prisons started under his term. But on the other hand, homicides, yeah, actually went drastically down during his term, and that's credited a lot to social investment. That can be the case. But the, the contrasting case, and that's, that's why I say that this kind of one-to-one of like, you know, poverty being responsible for crime is a bit tenuous at times. Because uh, the other case is Venezuela, whereas poverty went down, homicides actually drastically went up. Um, yeah. And that, that's also related in that the state lost control over its own prisons and most of the country. But um, it, it, is, it is curious. On the other hand, there's a lot of compelling evidence that suggests that the neoliberal policies of Correa's successor, Moreno, and then Lasso, of cutting budgets... Um, social services, and uh, including on security as well, massively contributed to the crisis that we see today. But uh, as you mentioned, a huge important factor are just natural um, uh, dynamics, changes that we see in the market for drugs. Uh, Related to that, 
criminal economies, you know, homicides tend to go up and down relative to so many different factors. You can't always blame it on the policies of the president. But in the Ecuadorian case, it's clear that, for instance, the demobilization of the FARC uh, reconfigured a lot of the criminal economies in Colombia and also the pandemic. There's been this huge uh, drop in the price of coca in Colombia that no one is exactly sure why. The best theory, uh, the best theory seemingly is that um, there was a lot of overproduction during the pandemic and they couldn't export much of the finished cocaine because all the borders were closed. And so now they're sitting on its huge stockpile that has since caused the price of um, the raw coca to go down. That may have contributed to a lot of a lot more competition for roots in Ecuador to Europe and in Asia, et cetera. And, right. and the, the Mexican cartel has also rushed in. To, there's this kind of proxy war between some of the gangs that are uh, allied with Sinaloa and then CJ, CG and J, CJ and G. Well, I mean, it'd be good if the uh, if you know if at least the the financial press covered the the comings and goings of the drug market, in and indeed <laughs> criminal markets in general in their business. They should. Pages. A lot of their readers treated, are probably involved. So, well, they're probably that's true. But I mean, just also in terms of portraying <laughs> this as as a you know this is a matter of business. These are corporate matters. You know. The, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, and you know, what the violence often increases when there's conflict. I mean, I, I know the case from Brazil, so I can't really speak too much from for the rest of the region but the highest murder rates are always associated with conflicts over territory between gangs mm -hmm. um and mm -hmm. where you have an effective monopoly i mentioned this already in the previous um interview where you have an effective monopoly by one gang the pcc in, in the case of sao paulo um mm -hmm. things are relatively okay they don't want a lot of you know blood on their hands which complicates business for them so um these things are yeah, and that's all due to negotiations between security forces and the pcc this has been well documented or at least there's a lot of compelling evidence in that favor. It's a ledge, but yeah, yeah, no, indeed. Um, so anyway, I mean, I think th to br bring it to the wider social context, um, because there is, I mean, actually, just before that, maybe you want to talk about Colombia, actually, um, and and the the extent to which because uh, you have this piece in America's Quarterly um, about uh, the Colombian president Petro and uh, Bukele and what they have. Uh, a problem they have in common, um, but they themselves have sparred uh, over their kind of differing approaches. So in Colombia, yeah, this was around in March 2022 or 2023, both Petro and Bukele are these horrible Twitter warriors. And they had this back and forth where Petro accused uh, Bukele, uh, you know, being authoritarian and not respecting human rights for displaying, you know, the, these displays of gang members and the prisons and whatever, half naked. Uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, Petro also accused Bukele of, you know, still negotiating with the gangs, but doing so covertly, unknown to the public, whereas, you know, he does so overtly and is trying to do so legally. That's another uh, story. But so, yeah, Bukele clapped back that he's, you know, way more popular and uh, that Petro's corrupt because his brother, chief of staff, and who else is it? Um, oh, it, I, I forget now, but there's a ton of people in his administration that are currently under investigation, some of which for uh, receiving money from drug traffickers during his 2022 presidential campaign. But, um, 
the the Colombian case is interesting because Petro's Paz Total initiative, it's in in a way, yeah, the same thing that Bukele has been doing since he became mayor of El Sa- of uh, San Salvador, and even before then of Nuevo Cuscatlan. Bukele is as a document or at least alleged to have been negotiating with gangs for many, many years now. And that's part of the reason why he's supposedly so good at it. One of the things I argue is that a lot of these things, um, there's a learning curve to them, both repression and also negotiating with criminal groups. Uh, The results are only as good as the negotiator and the specific agreement that's struck. To that end, Petro has a really interesting has had a really interesting initiative since he um, came into office and campaigned on this that he wanted to negotiate with all of Colombia's most important criminal groups, the ELN, the uh, AGC, Autodefensas Gaitanistas de Colombia. They're kind of the um, this uh, paramilitary successor group today. The country's most important drug trafficking organization has many thousands of members. And so the idea is that in exchange for giving like reduced sentences and other benefits to members of these criminal groups, uh, they will agree to disarm and also turn themselves in. Sounds good on paper. Uh, The problem is coming to specific agreements with so many of these groups at the same time is extremely difficult. It's also tenuous because, uh, a lot of times one group will take advantage of the other negotiating to try to fortify itself and encroach on other territories, et cetera. You have to verify that they're also um, complying by uh, whatever agreement is struck. There was some early promising uh, data out of Buenaventura that the, that the city's two largest street gangs came to an agreement to limit homicides and begin uh, uh, negotiating with the government. This actually reduced homicides drastically, but evidently that hasn't lasted. Moreover, it took a long time for the government to be able to overhaul the pertinent laws to be able to begin directly negotiating with these groups. But as I argue in in that America's Quarterly piece, you know, long term, there are still problems. If you really want to reduce violent crime, you need to be able to hold, hold those accountable but accountable. <laughs> so you, you need to be able to fortify um, your courts, uh, laws, pertinent criminal justices, hire um, uh, good prosecutors and judges uh, such that a majority of crimes are eventually convicted, which is not the case throughout most of Latin America. And it remains the case that there drug joining drug gangs or other sorts of gangs criminal enterprises is still a better opportunity than um the other opportunities on offer for a lot of working class and poor kids uh, across exactly. the region so that doesn't seem to be we'll, we'll touch on this in, in just a, in just a second um but we've talked a lot about i guess the supply of these policies but the demand for these policies also in large part comes from below um, and we're going to continue this discussion over on Patreon at patreon.com slash BungaCast. So please subscribe if you want to uh, listen and see if you're watching us uh, the rest of this discussion. If not, catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.